Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. It is our hope to proclaim the historic faith and the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me. You surround us with shouts of deliverance. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There is an apocryphal story about golf legend Arnold Palmer. Palmer once played a series of exhibitions in Saudi Arabia, and the king was so impressed with Palmer's playing that he proposed to give Palmer a gift. Palmer said, Your Highness, that isn't necessary. I'm simply honored that I was invited here. The king replied, I would be personally insulted if you would not allow me to give you a gift. Palmer thought for a moment and said, All right, well, how about a golf club? I think that would be a lovely memento, my visit here. The next day, delivered to Palmer's hotel, was the title to a golf club. That is, hundreds of acres, trees, lakes, and a clubhouse. (laughs) The moral of the story is, in the presence of a king, don't ask for small gifts. I would like to speak tonight about the most majestic of gifts, a gift that was recovered for us during the Protestant Reformation. It's been 500 years since Wittenberg, 500 years since the... 95 theses were nailed to the castle church door, making an announcement to the world about the nature of God's affection for every one of us. I know that the Reformation is a complex movement. It involves the good, the bad, and the ugly. But I want to say tonight that it was set in motion, originally set in motion, by a beautiful truth. And the beautiful truth is this, that the gospel is about gift not payment. The gospel is about gift, not payment. Martin Luther's original protest against the medieval church had to do with its demand for payment, particularly payment for indulgences, that is, certificates signed by popes or bishops that were essentially contracts that loosed people from a purgatorial sentence, either somebody living or somebody who had already passed. If you made a donation, you received the certificate, and then you or your loved one could spring from the hot place. These donations were collected and were used to fund the construction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. One of the 95 theses, I argue the most moving one, says this, if the Pope is able by his own authority to empty purgatory, why would he not do so out of love rather than for money? That question led Luther to examine various aspects of the theology of his church. And he discovered that medieval Christianity had mutated into a system of bartering. Lots of bartering. Pilgrimages, relics, novenas, scapulars, miraculous medals, and even communion was believed to
to be a propitiatory act. That is to say, when the priest would offer from the altar the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ, it was believed that the perpetual offering of the Mass day by day would continue to propitiate or abate God's wrath and justice. And so even communion itself was a bit of a barter, hoping that God would, would sheathe the sword for another day. This isn't me uh, ragging on medieval Catholicism only. I'd like to now rag on evangelicals. If you watch Christian television, I don't recommend it, but if you watch Christian television, especially late at night, you'll discover all sorts of people that are trying to sell you things, little trinkets, vials of holy water or, or holy oil, that if you pray over these things, anoint yourself with these things, you will be blessed and secure and have your relationship with God improved. If that doesn't do, you, do it for you, you could always enter into mass media uh, in terms of what evangelicalism is trying to sell you these days. Lots and lots of study Bibles, obscure study Bibles. There's a mass market right now on study Bibles that's borderline obscene without the borderline. And you could buy the Cub Scout study Bible, the single mom study Bible, the retirees study Bible, the environmentalist study Bible, and my favorite, the Jimmy Carter study Bible. Thank you, Mr. President. But the Reformation at its best recovers what makes Christianity Christian. And that is the gospel as gift rather than payment, the gospel as gift rather than bartering. And I'd like to consider our reading from Romans 3 and consider it in three sections. The first section has to do with design. Design. This is what St. Paul writes. But now, okay, parenthesis comment, uh, Paul so far in Romans 1 and 2 and 3 chronicles the moral failures of both Jews and Gentiles. Some fail with the law and divine revelation. Others fail in ignorance of the law and divine revelation. But both Jews and non-Jews fail to meet the mark of righteousness. Further, Paul says that the law given by God does not aid human beings in their quest for righteousness, but rather stands as an objective sort of judge over humankind. It reveals or unveils sin for what it is. And now Paul is taking a turn. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Design. The design for life is righteousness. It's righteousness. And righteousness is moral legitimacy, moral beauty. It is part of God's own character. It's something that makes God distinct from everything that God has made. And we see this in God's interactions with people. People have an instinctive reflex whenever they encounter something divine. They fall back. They fall away. Uh, or they're commanded to be distant. This happens with Moses in the scene with the burning bush where God appears to Moses and says that he's going to free the Israelites from Egyptian captivity. But he says to Moses, take your shoes off your feet for the ground upon which you stand is holy. Same thing happens to Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah sees, in a sense, the beatific vision, sees the throne room of God and his 
instinct, as the angels are all crying out, holy, 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 is to say, I don't belong. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a community of people that talk trash constantly. And then uh, there's also St. Peter when he's in the boat with Jesus, and, and Jesus creates this miraculous catch of fish, and Peter instinctively says, get away from me, for I'm a sinner, I'm a sinful man. There's something about God's holy character, his uh, moral beauty and legitimacy that creates uh, a, a, some sort of fallback with human beings because we were designed for that same righteousness but have not lived in it. We were designed for righteousness. We were designed to be the looking glasses of God, mirroring back uh, his divine image, his moral quality, beauty. This is why Jesus can say on the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, because that is the ultimate aim of humanity, to match God's nature. And I think before we get into the severity of righteousness that's reflected in the law, we need to consider how good it is. I mean, think about it. This is a Louis Armstrong kind of world. You know, trees of green, red roses too. I forget the lyrics, but I think to myself, what a wonderful world. And wouldn't it be a wonderful world? Wouldn't it be a wonderful world if righteousness could actually be embodied more regularly? Wouldn't it be a wonderful world if mothers didn't manipulate their children for affection? Wouldn't it be a wonderful world if husbands would learn to control their temper? Wouldn't it be a wonderful world if people would stop selling heroin in Grove City? Wouldn't it be a wonderful world if uh, kids actually ate their vegetables rather than you know, throwing them at their parents? I don't know. Wouldn't it be a wonderful world if governments wouldn't lie constantly and murder people? Wouldn't it be a wonderful world if lovers didn't deceive you and cheat? And wouldn't it be a wonderful world if people who borrow things from you actually started to return them? A wonderful world. This is the design of righteousness. And this righteousness is expressed legally in the Old Testament, takes a legal form and expression in the law. The undergirding message of the law repeated several times in the law is, from God, be holy as the Lord your God is holy. That's what you were created for. And the law gives you an objective standard of what that holiness looks like. It isn't just some abstract idea. It means, please don't kill your neighbor or steal his speedboat. Uh, you probably should stay, not probably, you should stay faithful to your spouse and not cheat. You probably shouldn't lie to the IRS. Like it has a form and a structure, you understand? Like the law actually specifies what holiness and righteousness looks like. It reflects the righteous design of creation. The problem is, of course, uh, that it requires a lot of work. And when you require a lot of labor and a lot of work from sinners, they don't often cooperate very well, especially when you have a covenant like the law that says it's the doers of the law, not the hearers who will be justified. So if you want to succeed at this thing, you've got to perform. You've got to toe the line. You've got to labor on. And if you don't labor on, then we've got a problem. But this is the, the inherent problem with the law. It's not problematic in terms of its moral norms. It's quite beautiful. But the law can't cure the um, persistently resistant human heart. The law cannot make you love well. It cannot reorient inner disorder. In fact, if the law is all that you have, it tends to create either legalists or libertines. It creates legalists, people that are very disciplined and regimented and highly critical. 
that they think legitimacy comes through what they can produce, what they can do, how they can improve. Or you get libertines, kind of the free-spirited types. You know, I'm thinking of people that really think that if they disbelieve in righteousness, it ceases to exist. I used to think about this with my bills. You know, when Monique and I were first married, money was tight, and if I hid the credit card bill, like under a cookie jar or under the flower, it ceased to exist. It disappeared, and I didn't owe any more debt. Uh, so this is what the law tends to create, and Jesus was always swimming in a sea of legalists or libertines. Always. But we have good news because it says here in this passage that the righteousness of God has been revealed, unveiled, apart from the old system of external religion, apart from the code, apart from the contract. Something of God and of God's righteousness and his design has come through an external source that is not dependent upon our obedience, not dependent upon what we can produce. This is UFO language, I know, but it's called by the Reformers an alien righteousness. Not something innate and created, but alien, foreign, that comes to us from the outside, that is visited upon us. Luther discovers this, of course, in the midst of his inner torment. He was a person who was deeply in touch with his own pain. Uh, people would, today would call him neurotic. Uh, I would just say he was really aware of himself. He said this, I tortured myself with prayer, fasting, vigils, and freezing. People really used to believe that if you would freeze yourself in a, in a monastic cell, that it would be good for your sanctification. The frost alone might have killed me. I constantly walked in a dream, for I regarded Christ as a severe judge seated on a rainbow. I hated the righteous God who punished sinners and said, if it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are now crushed by the law, and God adding pain to pain, he threatens us with righteousness and wrath. But at last, I gave heed to the context and meaning of the words, namely, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. I began at that moment to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift by faith, and here I felt that I was, no, that I was altogether born again, and had entered paradise itself through open gates. It's this idea that righteousness, real and lasting righteousness, cannot be self-generated, but is coming to you as a gift. Melanchthon discovered this at Luther's hand. Melanchthon was Luther's very timid student, terribly introspective, fearful, fretful, and he wrote about seven letters to Luther saying, I don't feel secure in my salvation. I don't know if I'm really a believer because I, you know, I sin, and doesn't sinning mean that I didn't believe in the first place? And maybe you've worked yourself into knots through those same kind of questions. And Luther, on occasion, got frustrated with life, and on occasion got frustrated with Melanchthon, and wrote him a letter that I will now summarize. Dear Melanchthon, my advice to you is this, go and sin boldly, and then go to the cross and boldly confess it, because God does not save fictitious sinners like you, but only real sinners. <laughs> and then he concludes by saying, my dear son, always remember that the whole gospel is outside of us. The whole gospel is outside of us, meaning 
Melanchthon, you are looking for your righteousness in the wrong place. Your theology is a mirror. You think you're going to find it in you. I'm going to hand you a telescope so that you stop looking at you and look outside. You look to the righteous man who gave his blood. And that's where you'll see all of your righteousness. He wanted him to know that the whole gospel is outside of us. It's externally given. So that's the design. We were designed for righteousness. And when it couldn't be created in us, God gave it to us. Design. Now something about deficit. You may know in this country we have a $20 trillion debt. But I have really good news for you. I've researched this. And if you tonight pay $160,000, and everybody in this building does that, and everybody in America does it, we could deal with this thing. Isn't that nice? So cough it up. Or maybe you, like me, fall short. <laughs> we fall short. This is what St. Paul writes. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's design, his original design for righteousness, requires equilibrium between parties. Peace and tranquility between us and himself. And because of the, the fall in our, in, in our inward nature, we lack that equilibrium. And this text very controversially says that there's no distinction. Now, originally Paul meant that about Jews and Gentiles. This is really troubling now. Because we, we really don't believe anymore that the beastly instinct is comprehensibly afflicting. And we live in, a, in an age where we love, we really love distinctions, and we love blame culture and victimhood. We start believing that there are people who have been spared some of the effects of original sin. You know, women are superior to men. Asians are superior to Anglos. Jocks are now superior to nerds. Type B people are superior to type A people. Those who don't require safe spaces are superior to those who do require safe spaces. Uh, those who kneel for the national anthem are superior to those who stand. Girl Boy Scouts are superior to Boy Boy Scouts. And all of us are superior to Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> but then the Bible speaks. The Bible says that no, all have fallen short. There really are no nonconformists at this point. All of us have fallen short in some substantial, substantial way. And none of us really makes the cut. This is why St. Paul says, says earlier in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, no one understands, no one seeks for God. No, not one. And as if that's not enough, then Isaiah is such a buzzkill because in chapter 64, he says that even our righteousness, not our sins, our righteousness is as filthy rags. So even when you're having your best day and you're like St. Francis of Assisi and you're walking around and you sing to the birds and you say a prayer and you're thankful and you, and you read something pious and you share it on Facebook and you're, you're extra nice to your parents and you remember your mother's birthday and you, you're, you don't rip on any of your friends and you smile a lot. God says, yes, but even then, the human consciousness is riddled with complex moral failure. If you don't like it from St. Paul, I'll give you a lesser source, but let's talk about Carl Jung, okay? Carl Jung, psychoanalyst. Jung says this, 
Unfortunately, man is less good than he imagines himself or wants to be. Everyone carries a shadow, and the less aware someone is of their shadow, the blacker and denser it is. This shadow is not made from little weaknesses and foibles, but of a positively demonic dynamism. Having a dark suspicion of these grim possibilities, man turns a blind eye to the shadow side of his nature. Man incessantly hesitates to admit the conflict of which he is so painfully aware. Blindly, he strives against the salutary dogma of original sin, which is so obviously and prodigiously true. The human heart is not a candy factory. If God were to examine the human heart, some people say, well, I'm, you know, I know that I've done bad things in my life, but God always looks at my heart. I want to say to them, I'm not sure that's any better, and it might be worse, because sometimes the human heart is full of like sin and cholesterol. And then what do you do? This is why Christianity at its heart is not about affirming you. It's not about affirmation. It's about absolution. And that is a hundred times better. So that's something about deficit. And now something about a deposit or a gift. From verse 33. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Justification, as you know, we've spoken a lot about this at this church, but it's a legal term. It means something like acquittal in a court. But Paul upsets the traditional understanding of this word within a law court analogy because in a court of law, you want innocent people to be justified or acquitted. Right? If somebody commits a crime against you, what you want is uh, for... The, um, the, the, the judge or the jury to find them guilty, and if there's a, a contested point, they find you innocent. But strangely enough, Paul seems to think there's only one audience, one group of people that end up justified. People that are guilty of sin. They are let off the hook. And they're let off the hook by grace. That is the dismerited favor of God. Favor that is, by its nature, unfair, seemingly unjust. We'll talk about the just foundation of it for a minute, but it's unfair in its effect toward those who have committed wrong. Jesus embodies this principle all the time. Every time he engages with a sinner who is uh, destroyed by their sinful life, he seems to prefer the libertines on this point because they're a little more receptive. Uh, he, it seems in his engagement with them, treats them as a justified person or as a just person, engages with them from a position of kindness and love, believing that moral transformation only happens if love precedes it. So he engages with people in this way, assumes this relationship, and out of that springs all sorts of new and beautiful life. Jesus embodies this principle of justification, uh, and this idea of, of justification and the grace that creates it is directly tied to and inseparable from the cross. The cross. In other words, God doesn't just turn a blind eye to sin, pretend you never did it. Uh, he's not like, um, you know, my grandmother used to say that about her grandchildren, love turns a blind eye. Love doesn't turn a blind eye. Instead, love does something else. Love takes the offense to the cross. It says that the grace happens through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. 
Now, the atonement of Jesus is a divine mystery. It has many beautiful facets, like you could appreciate a diamond from different angles. The cross is an example of selflessness. The cross is how God deconstructs and defeats cosmic evil. The cross shows God's solidarity with the death-bound human race. But core to, to a biblical understanding of the cross is that it is a propitiation. That's a big word that we don't often use anymore. But to propitiate something means that you absorb justice or that you absorb wrath. It comes from the Old Testament sacrificial system. The sacrifices in the Old Testament were offered as a visual parable of the cost of sin. And so people would bring animals to an altar and have those animals slaughtered as a substitutionary and swapping act so that it was like guilt transfer. It was a parable of guilt transfer, that you would lay your hand on an animal and there was something about you that had torn the moral fabric of God's world and there was a penalty for doing such a thing, but you are not punished. Instead, the entity on the altar is punished in your place. That's the theology, the basic theology of propitiation. And the message of sacrifice is that God takes sin seriously because it destroys part of his design and that sin will be held to account and punished. Now, Jesus, we believe, is that propitiation that ends all propitiation. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This satisfies the justice of God's righteous design. This is why, by the way, Romans calls Jesus or says of Jesus, he is the just, according to God's design, and the justifier of those who place faith in Christ. The result of this act of propitiation is a holy swap. Sin is punished in the innocent Christ, and legitimacy is given to people that are guilty of sin. They're off the hook, and off the hook totally, because sin really has been dealt with, and dealt with definitively. Lots of protests over this perspective some say it portrays God as wrathful or justly punishing sin. That is what the Bible actually teaches, though. Some people would say it means that God is cruel, and that he beats up an innocent person to get his anger out of his system, uh, much as an angry man, so as not to beat his children at night, would kick the dog instead. That was a direct or near-direct quote from Brian McLaren. I want to say that such a perspective or a protest against this perspective of the atonement, which is deeply Pauline, is implicitly Arian in its quality. Arianism teaches, uh, it's a fourth century heresy, that Jesus is a fantastic human being, maybe even something angelic, but that he's not God. And ultimately, God brings his wrath out of himself and pours it on this innocent sufferer, this man, and then feels better about you and about me. But we believe, because of Scripture and the Nicene Creed, that Jesus is God from God, light from light, very God from very God. So in the atonement, what happens is that God bears God's own justice. God is the one, if I can put it this way, and with some fear and trembling, that God loves us more than his own life. And in this sense, propitiation is love. Propitiation is love. Somebody, somebody absorbed, absorbed justice so that you don't have to. A human example of this, and all human examples fail, but this one gets at something like propitiatory love, 
It comes from the uh, author Rod Rosenblatt. I've told this story years ago, but I'm going to reuse it. Uh, he is a, a Lutheran scholar and a professor at Concordia University in Irvine, and he tells a story about how he came to a place of living faith. Rod was raised in a devout Christian home, but he really never bought into Christianity. He always felt like a foreigner in the Christian church. But when Rod was 16 years old, his father got a promotion and became head of surgery, a prestigious position. And to, award, to reward himself, because of this promotion, he purchased a 1965 white Buick Skylark. Now, there are three of you in this building who can appreciate what that means. Uh, one Friday night, Rod's father was called to an emergency operation and, of course, left the nice car in the garage. So Rod did what any 16-year-old uh, would do. Rod invited his friends over, and they broke into the liquor cabinet and got thoroughly sloshed. And when 16-year-olds are thoroughly sloshed, they don't always evidence good judgment and decided to take out the, car for, the new car for a spin. Rod pulled out of the driveway and was instantly hit by a truck that totaled the new vehicle. The teenagers inside were cut and bruised, but ultimately not terribly harmed. And Rod, in a state of panic, called his father and told him what happened. The father said, don't worry, I'll come home right away. Send the boys home so I can talk to you. The father discovered Rod on the floor of his bedroom in a fetal position, his face covered in tears and mucus, and said, why don't you sit up and let's talk. And the father said to him, oh, I know that you're in shock, uh, and I'm sorry for all that's happened, but I feel a little bit bad because you're now 16, and I never bought you a car. Tomorrow, I'm going to take you out of school early, and we're going to go shopping, and I'm going to buy you a new car. And Rod said, at that moment, I became a Christian. Now, when Rod tells that story, the audience freaks out, especially the parents. Like, what? <laughs> like, really? Yeah. So the dad bears all the penalty, all the cost, and then above that spends more money to buy this brat some car. You need to teach that kid some responsibility. He needs to go work at the paint store for six years to pay off the damage, buy his own car, and then buy me one too. And yet, and yet, if we hate the father in this story, we must hate Christ even more. Because Christ did for you something far grander than buy you a new car. He took your past and absorbed it into mercy and nullified every single transgression that you have ever committed. Now, I was just at a retreat and I told this story and got the following pushback. Well, that's okay in theology and in theory, but that's terrible parenting. And I said, rather snarkily, you're right. You're right. All it did was create out of Rod Rosenblatt, the leading theologian of the Lutheran Church. But other than that, you're right, an abysmal failure. An abysmal failure. Why? Because we like grace when it is contained in liturgy, theology, and theory, but not when it actually meets a human being. Not when it actually invades real life and how we interact with one another. We're okay with grace if it's tidy and sterile in a, in a pristine category, but what would happen if it actually leaked out into our parenting and how we love one another and take care of one another? Am I saying you should never punish your children? No, but by all means, show them more grace than you do now. We all need to show each other more grace than we do now. You were purchased, friends. You were purchased by crimson currency, 
The cross is costly for Christ, not for you. It is a sheer gift of 200-proof grace. Grace admits sinners into the company of saints. It takes grimy tax collectors who illegally pray in the temple and makes them new. It cheers as 6 a.m. busybodies get paid the same wage as hungover slackers who arrive at the factory at 4 p.m., and it inspires dignified fathers to run and tackle their dung-covered prodigals. Grace says to you in this moment, all your debts are paid, all penalties revoked, all bartering is banished, and all performances are forever canceled. And this grace comes to us not through labor, not through transformation, but through faith, through trust. I am now going to quote Paul Tillich. He is a nutcase, but his definition of faith is one of the best I've heard. Paul Tillich said that faith is the courage to accept the acceptance of Jesus Christ. You have a profound acceptance through the fountain filled with blood. And it's all been taken care of, and it's all dealt with. And so I think this is the greatest challenge in the Christian life. It's not a moral hill to climb, but believing that that gift really is for us. After all has been said and done, weighed and measured, that grace doesn't flinch, not for a moment. This is why the Reformation was not some obscurantist movement. It struck at the heart of the matter, Luther's key question, how can I find a gracious God? Luther's genius, you see, sprung from his inner torments. He knew that he could not by himself pull his life back together. And so my closing question to you is this. What do you do with your manifold deficits, with your frayed moral wardrobe? I'll tell you what we do. We either make others pay or we think we can pay. We make others pay. Alcoholics Anonymous has a beautiful confession-oriented prayer. It says this, We made others pay in order to make up what we lacked in ourselves. We do this sometimes through our actions, sometimes through our betrayal, mostly through our words, through our cynicism, snark, anger, sarcasm, ridicule, and put-downs. We make authority figures pay. Authority figures that should have done us better. So we rail against the Congress, our dads, our moms, doctors, police, and lawyers. You know, the man's always after me. Or we make religion pay. All those people are a bunch of hypocrites anyway. Or, you know, you think that you're going to inherit the Elysian fields in, in a church, and you go to this church, and you have these high expectations, and when the church doesn't match your high expectations, you leave that kick the dust off your feet and go to another church until you're mad at them three weeks later for not being paradise on earth. And so you're mad at religion because it didn't deliver what you thought it should have. Or we make conservatives pay. You know, we join little Facebook groups and we join communities called woke. And we regard conservatives as unenlightened intellectual Neanderthals who need to get with the times. Or we make liberals pay. Unpatriotic, godless, college-torching terrorists who don't believe in free speech. Or we make men pay, we make women pay, we make people of different races pay, we make poor people pay, we make successful people pay, or we make the world at large pay. Sometimes older people become angrier as they get older, looking at a world that has gone awry, thinking to themselves, I can't control it or fix it, and what I can do is be angry about it and vent my verbal rage over and over and over again to anybody who will listen to me even if it means de-sanctifying and de-consecrating the world. 
We make others pay. We make them pay. And when that doesn't satisfy us, and it never will, we turn on ourselves. We start to make ourselves pay. We work way too hard, not because we love the labor, but because we're trying to create some legitimacy in some community, or with our family, or with God. Or we verbally degrade ourselves as fat, or stupid, or lazy, and we think that if we scrape our souls with stones long enough, or if we hate ourselves deeply enough, we'll finally be free. We'll finally atone. Or we hurt our bodies, we exercise too much, or we eat too little, or we cut, or we over, you know, overeat, or we sleep around just to numb the pain. Or we have a religious seal that arises apart from the gospel. Lots of little regiments that we think will change us, and then when they don't change us or don't change us in the way that we think they should have, we just go shopping for another thick plastic binder of new ideas. That's the same old, same old. And the bleak results of this kind of theology and practice, this kind of payment, is an ashen field covered with bloodied, bruised, and devastated people. But here comes Christ. Christ walks into your ashen field. And he says to you, they don't have to pay. And you don't have to pay. And nobody has to pay. Because I paid. To quote Sammy Hagar, I'll tell you like it is. You don't have to give. Amnesty is granted. And to quote Tom Petty's last song, I forgive it all. The hurt, I forgive it all. And so tonight you have fallen into the hands of a gracious God. This is the Reformation at its heart the gospel is about gift, not payment, not a pound of flesh, except the flesh of Jesus. This is why the gospel means good news. It's an announcement, not good advice. The Christian focus is not what we are to do. It's what has been done. So tonight I'm not going to tell you what to do or how to apply this to your life. Instead, on this Reformation Sunday, I present to you a finished gift. All is done. Grace is the alpha and the omega of our lives. It covers a multitude of sins. Indeed, all the sins you've got. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Come your way. Come your way. Oh.